Welcome, welcome, one and all. It's time for another podcast episode of New Mexico in Focus. I'm your host, as always, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Monday, January 10th, 2022. Still got to get used to saying the year right. Uh, luckily, don't write as many checks. That's usually where I mess that part up. But uh, it's just still a mystery to me where 2021 went. But here we are, a new year, and we got lots of new content for you as well. We're going to kick things off with a Facebook Live we did uh, on Friday, late last week. We caught up with some of the folks involved in that dramatic rescue of a couple dozen people on the Albuquerque tram. Uh, Icy conditions uh, meant that the tram stopped working. They spent almost 24 hours in that tram before a dramatic rescue where the passengers rappelled down and then uh, navigated some difficult terrain to get to a helicopter to be brought to safety. And there were lots of organizations involved in that, from the Bernalillo County Sheriff to the Fire Department to UNM's Mountain Medicine Group and uh, Albuquerque Mountain Rescue. We gathered a few of those folks together to talk about what was going on behind the scenes, not only as the rescue happened, but how they planned for the rescue and planned for changing weather conditions and everything that makes something like this so very, very difficult. Luckily, everything turned out all right. Everybody brought down safely, but just a harrowing experience for people in difficult situations and overnight hours. And so we wanted to catch up and find out all about how it went down and bring that to you. So here is host Gene Grant. Hey guys, it's time for a Facebook Live. It is Friday, however, at noon. Usually we do this on Wednesdays, but we're very excited to talk today with three folks who were involved in that unbelievable rescue that made national headlines all over the world, it seems like. Larry Corrin, who was the chopper pilot of some renown that you, uh, now he's of some renown, that's for sure, <laughs> from the Bernalillo County Under Sheriff's Office. We really appreciate you being with us today, and we very much appreciate you bringing on is with us, uh, Joseph Waller, uh, Joseph Waller, sorry, he's with the Bernalillo County Fire Rescue Specialist with BCFD, the fire department, and Drew Harrell from UNM's Mountain Medicine Rescue Specialist uh, he's, um, I'm sorry, from the UNM Mountain Medicine Department. We'll, we'll get you the full title here in a quick second. Sorry about that. We'll, we'll hook up UNM. Uh, let's start with you, Larry. Um, unbelievable situation. I watched I MSNBC. I'm amazed at the places it got around there. But let's talk first about how this works, frankly, on Sandia Mountain. And what I mean by that is we've had a lot of folks move into this community in the last time, a period of time where there really hasn't been a high profile mountain rescue for a little bit of time. And sometimes it feels like folks don't understand how very dangerous sometimes the Sandias can be, not necessarily this tram situation, but just being out there. Could you talk about that a little bit, Larry, to get us going and how your operation works in regard to that? Sure, Gene. Uh, so the uh, Sandia Mountains, uh, the, the top of the Sandia Mountains right at about 10,300 feet. And uh, it's, it's one of the highest peaks in the uh, middle of New Mexico that, that, that we end up working in. Uh, there's a, quite a bit of tour travel and tourism in the area and people, especially during the uh, Balloon Fiesta and some other events, uh, like to go up the mountain, hike up the, the La Luz Trail. It's, it's nothing to be taken lightly. Uh, we, we encourage, do our best to encourage people to, to go prepared, have a fully charged cell phone, take water, uh, dress appropriately for the weather. Uh, this, uh, this particular rescue, of course, was a little bit of a different situation. These were employees that were working up at the Ten uh, Three Restaurant, which is up on top of the uh, on top of the peak. Um, our involvement uh, in this this rescue is was basically to provide uh, a, a crew of, of well trained uh, helicopter rescue personnel, and uh, to see if maybe we could help uh, with that extraction of those uh, of those passengers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let me get the other guys swung, swung in here for the fire department. I'm curious for the county, what's the relationship with Larry's end of the world and how, how does that work when it comes to rescuing someone on the hill? Who leads, who does what in this kind of a situation? The Bernalillo County Fire Department and uh, the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office, we work together 
in a joint venture for this uh, rescue team with the helicopter unit. Uh, Bernalillo County Fire Department supplies the paramedics and rescue specialists uh, to be assigned out with Larry and the uh, Bernalillo County Sheriff's officers at the hangar. And we're out there on a full-time basis and we train pretty much daily. And when we're not out there, we're training, you know, two or three times a month uh, for these types of instances. So um, on the fire department side, you know, whoever's assigned at the hangar at that time is in charge of county personnel and then we work very closely with UNM reach and treat physicians and paramedics as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great so. segue. Thank you very much for doing that to swing off to Drew Harrell and where your operation swings in. And Drew, because I screwed up your title, could you give us that one more time in, in your association with the university? Sure, Gene. Thank you so much. Uh, and Joseph, thanks for the plug. Um, so we have, Gene, we have a, a group of uh, paramedics and emergency medicine physicians. I am, I'm an emergency medicine physician. I work at the University of New Mexico at UNM Hospital and uh, provide care there. But we also have a group of us within the Department of Emergency Medicine within the International Mountain Medicine Center that do specific um, technical rescue and austere medical support. And we've been working with the collaboration along with uh, BCSO and BCFD for, Larry, keep me honest, it's been five, five or more years, it might have been longer than that, where um, in the, uh, the, the goal and the effort to be able to provide um, care in an austere environment, this is not your normal, as, as we will talk about today, not your normal run-of-the-mill EMS call where we could have um, significant concerns with access, with terrain, with weather, um, or prolonged periods where we have to spend a lot, a lot of time in the field to just to get to the point to extract someone. And then also one of the areas that we work on very closely with the Mountain Medicine Center is the technical rescue side. So a lot of the, the high angle technical rope rescue stuff. So we bring some of that uh, and the, the, the group that we have between SO and fire and the Mountain Medicine Reach and Treat team have done really um, amazing things in terms of training and preparing for things just like this and building systems in place to be able to, to respond and, and mitigate risks and uh, help people when, when we get the call, like we did on New Year's Day. Mm -hmm. uh, is, it, is it similar to what Mr. Weller just mentioned that you folks train a couple, three times a month as well? We do. We do this uh, through yeah. with all three entities. Um, so any of the given entities will be out um, training on specific um, uh, you know, things with the aircraft, specific rescue techniques or medicine on a consistent basis. So we're familiar and we're ready to go when we, when we get a call from Larry at whatever time of the day or night it might be. I gotcha. Under Sheriff Corrin, uh, that brings me right back to you and let's get into the situation that was and, and with a good result there. Um, first things first, I'm curious about the timeline. When, when did you first get made aware in your office that this situation was happening? Yeah, so for, the, for this particular call, I, I happened to be out on an early morning walk uh, with my wife uh, down near uh, the University of New Mexico, and which is uh, about three and a half miles away from my home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up getting a call from one of our, one of our rescue specialists who works for, the, uh, works for UNM. He's part of that, uh, that technical mountain rescue group, uh, Jason. And uh, he gave me a call and told, gave me the heads up that something was mm -hmm. coming up the uh, as far as a call for service, possible 20 people uh, mm -hmm. stranded on top of the tram uh, mid-span between some, some towers. And uh, at that point, um, I, I placed a call to my, my son to come pick us up uh, from our walk, but uh, he was already on his way to work. He happens to work over at the tram himself. And uh, <laughs> he said, well, Dad, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm almost to work. I, I'm not going to turn around now. And, uh, and so I ended up having somebody else give us a ride over there. But um, that, at that point, uh, that kind of initiated everything on our, on our side, uh, with the sheriff's side and our collaboration with the fire, fire department and UNM, and uh, just blasted out a, a text and, and made a few phone calls. And, and uh, these gentlemen and, and uh, our other crew members uh, jumped into action and, and uh, we set up a plan. And uh, this is, Gene, this isn't something that that is foreign to us uh, uh, looking at tram rescues is something that we've worked with the uh, tram and the tram management uh, for some time uh, several years in fact and and we've uh, run different scenarios sometimes uh, 
just tabletop scenarios and sometimes actually uh, getting up there on the tram and, and, uh, and playing out a scenario of a, uh, of a stuck, uh, stuck tram situation. So mm-hmm. uh, we just had to get all the resources in, in place uh, to include uh, having some specialists there at the parking lot at the lower tram and then having other personnel respond to the hangar and get a fuel truck nearby and take care of some of those logistical matters that, uh, that help us uh, make it uh, basically an, an effective and safe rescue. Mm-hmm. Larry, at what point did you know that a helicopter was going to be necessary here and that you weren't going to be able to just repel and walk these folks out? Was that an immediate decision, something a little bit later? Or when did that happen? Well, you know, uh, any, any search and rescue uh, around here, uh, we, we, we always consider using the helicopter as, as even a, a, a means of uh, a first resort. Uh, to, to any rescue because there's that search component and trying to find locate people it, even if it's just locating them from the air and then uh, directing ground personnel to them so uh, but once again this was this was some this was something that uh, we had we did have a plan of sorts uh, put into place at, at some time uh, for for the potential of this happening and so and this is a response by a lot of search and rescue stakeholders in the community and so we knew our, uh, we, that resource would be uh, valuable to have uh, during this type of rescue. Gotcha. Drew, may I ask you, and I'll ask uh, Joseph uh, as well, is, uh, do I have this correct that there was um, an attempt by some agency, not an attempt, it was done, an, an agent to walk up in the early morning hours and bring some supplies and things to the, uh, the two tram cars. Do I have that right? It's something about 3.30, 4.30 in the morning, somewhere around there? Uh, you do have it right, Gene. The timeline's a little off. So um, the, okay. the New Mexico uh, Search and Rescue Coordinator that was on scene, Spencer Moreland, had been working um, very diligently to get ground resources. Because as you, for those of you that might remember the early mornings of the New Year's Day uh, for January, just a few days ago, very windy, very cloudy, very low ceiling. So they had actually been working to get resources to the individuals trapped in the tram since uh, I believe the first cruise, and this is, I'm trying to recall, but I think they had actually put people on the trail maybe as early as 6 a.m. Um, after they put people on place. So there were people trying to make access, taking additional resources, taking equipment, mm-hmm. uh, and taking food and supplies to the people that were in the tram. That had been ongoing to about, um, that had been ongoing for about an hour to maybe an hour and a half from when we got our first personnel with the uh, with the air unit on scene there, so they had had people going pretty much just before first light, um, and okay. it took them a few out few hours to make access to the tram tower. And obviously, it takes a little bit of time to get um, uh, those people to the scene. And I think they've been working on that for several hours before we got there. That makes sense. That makes sense, Joseph. I'm imagining uh, that timeline you're familiar with as well. I'm curious what was brought to the folks. I mean. One of the things you hear on the street a lot about the situation is the all night stay they had to have. And did they have to stay there all night? Was there just no possibility of a rescue in the, in the dark? Again, it's easy to look back, but the helicopter was not going to be able to be used, you know, before daylight. Why, why was, why did they have to stay overnight? So, so this was a unique situation of the unknowns. So we didn't know exactly where the tram car was. Um, we got the call at around, you know, just around six, a little after six, which is about the time the ground crew started hiking in. And we're trying to gather information at this point. Um, when the crews got up there, they, they hiked in some warmer clothes, some food and water, you know, enough to keep their morale up and kind of get a situation report back down to command a Spencer. Uh, when we arrived there, we started, you know, collaborating with uh, incident command to let them know what our capabilities are, evaluate the weather on spot to see what it was doing up at that location and uh, develop a plan to, to get them out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was it something you had to lay out or some agency had to lay eyes on first to be able to get that plan going or you just know the mountain so well, you pretty much had it locked. Let me stick with Joseph on that one and I'll swing to, to Larry in a quick say. Yeah, it's, it's best to, to have someone from the rescue organizations 
someone to get up there to have eyes on to fully assess the situation before we just start moving people and equipment into an area of the unknown. So they were the first ones on scene hiking up. And uh, by the time we got there, you know, the weather was already rolled in and we were having to wait until we got openings at that second tower. I mean, it was covered in clouds. So just waiting for our opening to get a helicopter there to start getting more resources. So I think that was a good call to send people on foot up there to assess it uh, from a professional standpoint to give us a better idea of what's going on. That, that's very telling. I hadn't realized you had mentioned cloud cover before. I hadn't realized it had come down that low that, it, you know, that second tower, that's a big difference right there. I could totally see now where you guys are kind of coming from on that, on that situation there. Uh, Larry, once the decision's made, and I've had a couple people say, you know what, these rescue guys got a little bit lucky and not how you did it, but where the tram ended up, meaning it could have been in a much worse spot and been a much bigger challenge for you. Is, is that an, an agreeable statement? Is that something you've thought about as well? Yeah, I think uh, I think overall that, that's a. I would agree with that that statement. Uh, there was a, mm-hmm. there was a lot of challenges with this rescue, and uh, there's basically a couple of ways in which we train. And one one method is to uh, fly the uh, fly the helicopter near near the the suspended tram car, uh, and. Um, and extract the extract people using what's called the short haul method, which is basically just a rope on the bottom of the helicopter. Take one of these gentlemen and dangle them from the bottom of that rope and, and uh, insert them on, on top of the tram car. They would make their way through the hatch and into that gondola or that car and, and uh, start uh, uh, harnessing passengers. And then uh, I'd come back in with the, with the, uh, with that rope and they would attach those, uh, those passengers and then they'd go out that way. That was one, one method. It's, uh, in which we perform a rescue. The other method is to try to lower the passengers down to the, uh, to the, to the ground, uh, using some kind of repel system and, uh, and then, uh, picking them up on the ground somewhere. And so those are all things that we were going through in our, in our minds. We knew we had high winds. We knew the visibility it was sometimes zero uh, at where that, those tram cars were. And then we had icing. Some of the same conditions that, uh, that forced the tram car to stop uh, were, were concerns of ours as well. They, the tram operators and the owners of the tram were able to, to inch that tram car over to the tower. And, and, uh, and the owners themselves actually... Uh, hiked up there during those during those night hours and um, made their way over to the to the base of that tower number two, climbed up the tower, and got on top of the uh, the tram car with the, with the twenty passengers and through, went went into the hatch and uh, started setting up uh, essentially giving them some some uh, uh, some care packages and and start to set it, set them up for uh, basically repel. Uh, we waited for a break in the uh, in the weather. Our first trip out there was to take uh, some supplies uh, for that repel operation. And so, and uh, we dropped off some supplies. We also dropped off some uh, warm weather gear uh, it, with the, in the event that uh, they had to actually hike those passengers out. Uh, and um, it, we, and then the, we waited and let them get set up with all that warm weather gear and the, the repel system, uh, another wave of weather moved in and then we uh, ended up later on taking uh, taking these two gentlemen here uh, Waller and, and Harold and dropping them off along with another another person from UNM uh, Trevor who's not here today but I dropped them in to assist with uh, tri- basically escorting uh, the passengers once they repelled to the ground over to the helicopter mm-hmm. this uh, we were able to pull that off and get those 20 people off I, I'm estimating in less than an hour, about 45 minutes or so. And, um, it it was, it was challenging. Uh, and these, these guys could uh, testify to the the fact that the, it was not terrain that you'd want to take up, uh, the novice hiker on and and hike them out off that mountain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could see that, uh, Drew, I could, I could see that decision for sure, especially after the fact that these folks have been up in that situation all night, their heads are in a different place. I, I, I could totally see that. But I'm curious what, what was found for the state of the folks in the car. 
meaning obviously physically they had gotten through, they had gotten stuff to stay warm and stuff like that. But I have to imagine you have to get folks emotionally ready for this next step, this repelling thing. You have to give some instructions. You have to get people calmed down. You get people ready to go. Was there some difficulty there, uh, Mr. Harold, with that, or was were folks ready to go and pretty cooperative and just it just was just smooth? At, uh, well, so Gene, I, I would have to say, so the 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 ground crews that actually made the initial contact um, were the ones that were doing the great job on getting people secure and getting the morale up, like Waller talked about, and they did a, an outstanding job of um, setting up a lowering system and getting them ready. And I believe that was that was some of the Sandia Peak. Uh, employees and the owners, as well as Albuquerque Mountain Rescue and some of our other agency partners. So they had done a great job. And it looks like from, from the smiles that we saw on the faces of the, uh, of the tram employees, when we got to them on the ground, they had been jazzed up and were very excited to be out of the tram and hopefully on their way home. Um, and I think, you know, uh, they had done a great job um, with the initial rescue contacts and getting people, um, you know, understanding that here's what we're going to do next. And we've got a weather window that we, we got rid You're right. Gene, you were correct. We did get lucky in the sense that the weather cooperated with us for enough of a window to provide us an opportunity. And I think we, we put together a really good plan uh, and worked really seamlessly with, uh, with our other agency partners. And, um, and once we got them going out of the, out of the tram car, um, which was happening really, uh, if I recall correctly, Larry and Joseph's right, just as we were landing to get out, to kind of start making contact. Um, they had already put, uh, or were about to put the first um, employee on the ground from the, from the tram car in that lowering system. And then once we got that going, um, it was about a, probably a couple of hundred feet, almost probably a hundred yards of ground that they had to traverse from the base of the tram over to where we were landing the helicopter. And so we would bring them over in groups of two or four kind of give them a quick brief, let them know it was going to be loud and it was going to be uh, something they probably weren't familiar with, but we were, we had it, we were safe. We, uh, we do this all the time. And um, all of them were very excited for their new year's day helicopter ride for sure. Right. <laughs> I love it. That's a great story. I, I think it's actually interesting. Joseph, you know, when I, when I think about it again, it, it's easy to sit back after the fact and think about these things, but boy, I have to say employees and folks who knew each other, that's a bit of a different situation than say it was a bunch of tourists and perhaps, you know, some elderly folks were mixed in there. Some health issues might've been mixed in there. Did that make a difference in your planning that you had some, you know, they're relatively young, relatively healthy people as opposed to a different kind of a situation? Yeah, I mean, I think what we would plan for and our biggest fears were eased knowing that they were all adults that had no health issues, no injuries. And I'm sure for the, the workers, they all already knew each other. And, you know, during this ordeal, they probably made stronger bonds with each other. But definitely, if there were children and elderly individuals, that would change a lot of things as far as basic equipment we may need, uh, who's coming out first, and what have you. Um, so we would have to basically do a triage at that point to try to see who's, you know, in the worst shape that needs to come out with weather windows. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. This is, this is fascinating. I got a million more questions, but I, you guys have like real stuff to do. So I'm going <laughs> to wrap this up here in a quick second. Um, I, I'm, I'm so curious, again, I have to like how I started with this. A lot of folks don't realize Again, how dangerous a mountain can be at 10.3, 10.5, 10.4 in elevation. And it, 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 Drew, could you speak to that a little bit? I, you know, what kind of education do we need to do a little bit more uh, with folks around here about day hiking and hiking in general? Are you seeing folks are generally pretty up to speed on this or something slipping in our understanding? How do you see the, the world right now and how we relate to the mountain? Well, I, uh, how we see the world right now is obviously a loaded question, right, Gene? Um, right. <laughs> relative to mountain rescue and recreation outside, um, I, I think that's a great point. So we have, we see consistently across the, across the year, every year, we have, we don't have high profile tram rescues where uh, weather or whatnot requires us to be able to be involved in successful 
um, you know, help for folks. But we do see a lot of people that underestimate the mountains and go out ill-prepared. And I want a, a couple of things that are really important um, for your listeners and for anybody um, uh, around New Mexico or the world that's happening to listen to us on Facebook Live, um, right? It's, it's easy to go up, uh, or excuse me, it's, it's really hard um, to, to take into account the things that are going to go wrong, you know, mm-hmm. just before it gets dark. And consistently what we see people do here is underestimate uh, the distance and overestimate their abilities and find themselves in situations where their cell phone's not charged or they weren't as familiar with the terrain as they thought they were and the weather changed or it got dark and all of those things kind of compound. And then they try and turn around and realize that I'm off trail and I don't have enough water and I'm really tired or I'm really cold. And, and they find themselves needing to be rescued. And I, it's really important for people to be prepared as, as Larry talked about, like hike smart, make sure you have enough water, make sure you know where you're going, make sure you're prepared for what the weather is right now, but also for what you're going to find or maybe find yourself in, in two or four hours and, and have the necessary resources and kind of training and understanding to keep yourself from becoming um, a casualty and needing to be rescued. Cause that's the best rescue is the one we don't have to go on. And, and I, I really want to reinsure, uh, reinforce for folks is that it's really easy to walk off from what looks to be a really simple little hike and in the middle of the summer in July, you know, find out that you don't have enough water and you're not prepared and you end up really um, overcome with heat and or other weather. And we see this all the time, or you, um, you overextend yourself and you twist your ankle and you can't get down and it gets dark and it's lonely up there by yourself at night. And I think those are the big things, Gene, make sure you're prepared, make sure you know where you're going Make sure people know where you're going and have a way to call for help if you really need it. Mm-hmm. You know, you remind me of a situation I was personally involved with about 10 years ago on the mountain where uh, the three of us, the heaviest set person in our group twisted their ankle. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you something. It is not easy to walk someone downhill yep. with those kind of, uh, you know, degrees of downhill when someone's really leaning on you heavily. <laughs> if you're not yep. an official rescue person, it's not easy. And it's I learned not- a good lesson that day and I never forgot it. It was like, man, we didn't go, we didn't have to go more than a, a, a three quarters of a mile. And yeah. it was brutal. I mean, it was, it was so. really, really hard. And literally, let me start to wrap up here because I don't, again, I don't want to take up y'all's time. How much of this is ego? And what I, what I mean by that is, I think I'm a lot of like a lot of guys. I like to watch bushcraft videos on YouTube. I like to watch, you know, guys making campsites out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, doing their thing for days. I think it's great. I'm a guy. I sometimes I wonder if we think we can just manage more than we're actually able to as men sometimes. And we get ourselves turned around in these situations out of pure ego. Does, does that make sense in some, in so, at some level? Yeah, I think I think as far as rescues go and our people getting lost or, or injured on the on the mountain, that we we want people to enjoy the outdoors. We want them to to support that travel and tourism uh, of our unincorporated you know, unincorporated areas of Bernalillo County and and Sandia Mountain is one of those areas. And uh, it, it's just to do do it smart. And I don't I don't know how much of it is really ego. I found we find some people who. Who, who are very well skilled at uh, at mountaineering who end up having to twist their ankle. So um, right. I, I'm just I'm just fortunate to be working with these guys and 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 with a group of uh, search and rescue stakeholders to to really make these rescues happen. Uh, the, you got to remember, Gene, the search and rescue here in New Mexico is not a it's not a paid industry. It's a, it, the, and in fact, the, the, the relationship we have here with the uh, Bernalillo County Fire Department and UNM is a, a peer relationship, but we aren't compensated. Uh, we aren't compensating one or one agency or organization or the other. Uh, these people want to do this and, and they enjoy the outdoors themselves and, and they want to help, uh, help serve the community. And that's what they're here for. Just like a lot of these other search and rescue stakeholders to include Albuquerque Mountain Rescue Consortium even your uh, your IC of, uh, of of many of these search and rescue incidents, they're not paid, uh, and so I I just want to encourage people to support 
search and rescue stakeholders throughout the community, including uh, some of the Sevilla uh, National, Sevilla Forest Search and Rescue, all of them. Uh, they, they all do a very good job and, and uh, they're, they're there to help. I appreciate you saying that because that gives me a, a good way to wrap up here that the Albuquerque Mountain Rescue Council, you mentioned earlier, has their annual call for volunteers going on right now. It's very interesting timing. I'm hoping they get some good success out of this because um, January 13th and the 25th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at the Monzano Mesa Community Center, and that's abqmountainrescue.org. Um, email is info at abqmountainrescue.org as well. I got to wonder if, if a lot of folks will step in and really want to, you know, kind of pitch in now that uh, the situation has happened. But let me thank again, Larry Corin from the Bernalillo County Under Sheriff's Office, Drew Harrell, of course, from UNM, and Joseph Swaller from the Bernalillo County Fire, uh, Fire Department as well. Guys, thank you for the time well spent. It was quality. I think there was just a lot of questions out there about how, how, how this all went down in the public. And I can't say enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. Let me just, I had to say it again one more time. Thank you. I mean, I couldn't even imagine living in this city without you guys doing your thing in our, with our mountain and keeping us all safe. So we really want to thank you all for your time on this as well. We do those Facebook Lives on a regular basis, usually Wednesdays around lunchtime, around noon. So if you are grabbing your lunch, headed to the break room at work or out on a walk, uh, we encourage you to check our Facebook Lives and, and we always promote what we're going to be talking about, but we'll bring those to you here as well when we can. And now we want to move on to an interview from last show on New Mexico PBS with bioclimatologist and UCLA professor Parker Williams, also known as Park Williams. A lot of his research has focused on the growing drought and wildfire danger throughout the Southwest. And there's so much to cover here, especially coming out of that devastating Marshall fire in Boulder County, Colorado, went from zero to a hundred in no time flat because of extreme winds and again, this is an area where you don't usually have these kind of wildfires. That's why so many homes and businesses were devastated by the fire. Uh, this is something we're going to see a lot more of with climate change. And uh, Park will also talk about his research into how the West is getting drier, the East is getting wetter, and how these are all tied to climate change and what the impacts of that is. Also, how this drought is so different from uh, droughts we've seen in other decades, most notably like the 50s uh, here in New Mexico. So fascinating interview with correspondent Laura Paskus from Our Land. And we didn't have time for the full thing on the show, but we do here. And it's a great conversation, so we wanted to bring it all to you. So without further ado, here's Laura Paskus. Park Williams, welcome. Thanks for joining me on New Mexico in Focus. Yeah, you bet. So you're a bioclimatologist. What does that mean? Uh, somebody who can't decide whether they like to study the life more or the climate more. Um, climate affects life and life affects climate. Uh, vegetation life is something I'm really interested in and that especially has a big effect on climate. And so I study both and call myself a bioclimatologist. <laughs> nice. So let's start with the drought that's kind of been moving around the U.S. Southwest for the last 20 years and sort of different intensities and different places over time. Drought's a part of life in the Southwest in general, but this drought has been particularly severe, even when you look back over like long records. Can you talk a little bit about um, why this drought is so severe compared to anything we've certainly ever experienced before. Yeah, uh, so yes, you, uh, like you just said, the, the Western US and Northern Mexico have been in near perpetual drought for the last 22 years now. Dry conditions really set in in 99, 2000. It's 2021 now, so we're in our 22nd year. Um, it hasn't been dry for 22 straight years in every individual place. But if you look over the whole Western US and Northern Mexico, then of the last 22 years, 18 of them have been drier than average. Uh, average would be nine being drier than average and the other nine or so being wetter than average. So 
that seems like a pretty unique situation, interesting and consequential. We've seen big consequences, of course. We've seen big declines in our biggest reservoirs, Lake Mead and Powell. We've seen big bark beetle outbreaks, gigantic increase in forest fire activity, unsustainable uh, um, drilling of groundwater, especially in California's Central Valley. And so these things all say to us that something abnormal is going on, but it's hard to know how abnormal because our climate records only go back for about 120 years and they start becoming less reliable the further back we go. And luckily, we have tree ring records from all over Western North America from tens of thousands of trees that go back for hundreds of years or sometimes even thousands of years. And because Western North America is generally a pretty dry place where forests are oftentimes living on the boundary between just wet enough to survive and too dry, too dry to survive, then their annual growth rings, these are, the, these are the tree rings that you see on a tree trunk, these, these annual uh, rings on the tree, they're obviously annual, they grow once a year, and because trees are generally stressed out by water limitation, then the skinny annual growth rings mean years of bad growth, and the thick annual growth rings mean records of good growth. And if we measure all the growth rings from all these tens of thousands of trees, which scientists have done over the last century, and you take all of these trees and average them together, then what you get is a remarkably accurate record of soil moisture that goes back for over 1,200 years. From those records of soil moisture that go back 1,200 years, we can see that actually giant droughts are pretty common, especially from about 800 AD to 1600 AD. Um, there, was a, there were these repeated giant drought events that uh, scientists in the 1990s started calling mega droughts. They were called mega droughts because they were different from anything that modern society had, had to deal with. The 1800s and 1900s hadn't seen anything like the mega droughts. The mega droughts are really severe for decades on end, more severe and longer lasting than most likely human infrastructure was really um, established to handle. The question was how bad is this recent drought or this current drought compared to those mega droughts? And that's one of the questions I've been working to answer. And so how does, how does precipitation and how do temperature, like how do those two things factor into what we're seeing now? Yeah, well, this, this, uh, uh, the water balance is actually a pretty simple thing. Um, we can think about the land as a big bucket and precipitation works to fill up the bucket. And then variables like temperature and the humidity and wind speed and how much sunlight there is work to empty out the bucket. When the bucket gets too full and you get extra precipitation, it doesn't really matter because it runs off just like it does in the real world. Um, and if you empty out the bucket and then continue to uh, try and evaporate water, there's nothing left. Uh, and so using climate data, we can actually make calculations about how much water is in the bucket in any individual place across Western North America at any given time. And so we use climate data to make calculations of the moisture balance and when we do that, what we see is that the last 22 years, when we reconstruct these bucket moisture balance calculations back for 1,200 years, we see the last 22 years in Western North America are as dry or drier than any other 22-year period in at least the last 1,200 years. Because a lot of this is done with mathematics, because we're making these calculations of how much water is in the bucket using math, we can then delve into the hypothetical world where we say, well, what would have happened if global warming hadn't occurred? And so we can recalculate how much water would be in the bucket today if the globe hadn't warmed over the last century. And what we see is because part of this drought has been naturally driven, we still would be in a drought right now, even without global warming, but the drought would probably be only about half as severe, maybe 60% of its severity now. That means that this result, that the current 22-year drought is competing with the mega droughts for driest period in the last 1,200 years, that result can, is, is really established or is possible only because of two things. One, 22 years of bad luck, but also 22 years of abnormally warm temperatures. 
abnormally warm temperatures work to enhance evaporation rates. When there's water in the soil, that water sticks around less, um, sticks around for a shorter period of time because the world is warmer. So I get this a lot, maybe not as much as I used to as a reporter, um, covering climate change and the current drought. And people will say, the 1950s drought, like we made it through that, but it's different, right? What, what's happening now and what was happening in the 1950s? Those are different things. Yeah, the uh, 1950s drought was a serious drought and there's a lot to learn from it. Um, from the early 1950s through the mid-1960s, there were really, really a lot of drought years. And that drought was driven and dominated by low precipitation over and over again. But it was a cool drought. The temperatures during the 1950s drought were relatively cool compared to the temperatures that we've seen during the 2000s drought. A lot of the attention that the 1950s was getting and the debate about whether or not the 2000s drought or the 1950s drought was worse, that debate was really strong about 10 years ago. But since 10 years ago, we've continued across the western U.S. to have uh, pretty persistent drought conditions. Now, not everywhere. Uh, here in New Mexico, there have been some pretty wet years in the uh, 2010s. But if you look across the entire western North American region, the 2010s were on average really dry. And so this drought event is now longer than the 1950s drought and substantially more severe across a lot of the West. So um, a week or two ago, recently NOAA came out with the its data for October. And looking at the precipitation map for October was really sort of um, stunning to me. You could see so many states in a certain part of the country had above average, in some cases really high above average precipitation, and then the U.S. Southwest was basically white <laughs> on that side of the map. And you and your co-authors have a recent paper out putting east-west aridity in North America into context. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, so if you just look at a map of North America, one of the first things you'll notice is that the west is generally pretty brown and the east is generally pretty green. And the reason is that the east uh, gets a lot more precipitation in most years than the west. But then on top of those kind of average conditions, every year is a little bit abnormal. The west could be a little bit wet and the east could be a little dry, or the west could be a little bit dry and the east could be a little bit wet. And if you've looked at these maps any time in the last two decades, then probably what you've seen is that the west is abnormally dry and the east is abnormally wet. And uh, that's been really interesting. The dry area is getting drier. The wetter area has gotten wetter. And the question we had was, how abnormal is this? And the great thing about North America is not only does the west have a bunch of tree ring records, but the east has a lot of long tree ring records as well. We're able to use tree ring records in western North America and eastern North America to reconstruct back in time the moisture difference, the aridity gradient, we called it, between the dry west and the wet east. And what we saw is that the last two decades, in fact, have been very abnormal. Out of any pair of decades in the last 600 years, what we saw is that this last two decades, the difference between the dry west and the wet east has been stronger than in any other 20-year period in less, at least 600 years. So what does that mean for us? Well, uh, in the West, the story is actually simpler than in the East. Uh, in the West, there have been declines in uh, precipitation during the summertime uh, and a little bit in the spring in the Southwest. But the declines in precipitation haven't been giant. But the last 20 years have had quite a few dry years from a precipitation perspective. But the West has warmed really rapidly. As the temperatures have warmed, the air in the west actually has not gotten more humid. That means that the sponge of the atmosphere has gotten stronger. The atmosphere has gotten drier because of the warming, and that causes enhanced evaporation. And all of those things are in line, actually, with what climate models say should be happening in the west. That is, climate models say the west should be getting warm rapidly, and the evaporative demand of the atmosphere should be going up as a result and the southwestern United States should be getting drier during spring and summer, and we're seeing that as well. Mm -hmm. In the east, though, the story is much more complicated. In the east, temperatures across a lot of the east actually haven't gone up that much, especially during summertime. Mm 
The reason for why this is a bit of a mystery and super interesting, it might have to do with increases in precipitation, which drive increased evaporation, which actually cools the, uh, the land as long as there's enough water to support the evaporation, and uh, increases in cloud cover, and increases in forest coverage in the east. Um, but we don't know for sure. But the bigger driver of the wetting trend in the east has been increased precipitation in all of the seasons, especially spring, summer, and fall. And increased precipitation in the east is not something, or the rapid increase in precipitation we've seen in the east has, been, has exceeded anything the climate models say should be happening because of global warming. So either that means climate models are wrong, or it means that what we're seeing in the east is a very, very improbable event. And it has nothing to do with, with climate change, but it's just regular old natural climate variability. So there's a lot of work to be done to understand the climate of the east and why it's changing. Um, but the end result has been that the east, which is already wet, has gotten a lot wetter, and the west, which is generally already dry and drought stressed, has become more drought stressed. Thanks. So I wanted to uh, migrate kind of into fire next. Um, how, in the western United States, how has fire season changed? And kind of what time period are we talking about? Uh, over the last century, uh, the uh, fire activity in the west has increased. But the vast majority of that increase has occurred since the late 70s or early 1980s. Our really good records of fires start in 1984, and that's when we start having really good high-resolution satellite imagery that allows us to map where exactly each fire occurred. And what we've seen is across uh, the western United States, where we've got really good data going back to 1984, that over the last nearly four decades, we've seen the annual area burned increase by over 300%. Over 300% means three to four times as much fire burning, as much area, land area burning today as would be expected in an average year in the 1970s or 1980s. But if you look deeper and see where these increases are really occurring, then we see that they're mostly occurring in forested areas. Forest fire area has increased by over 1,300% since the mid-1980s, whereas outside of forested area, the increase in burned area has been about 165%. An increase in 165% is still a big deal. It means more than a doubling forested, or sorry, of area burned in non-forested area. And if the forest fire trend wasn't so huge, then that's what we'd be talking about is the doubling or tripling of burned area in non-forested areas. But forest fire has, has really stolen the show. And so the question is, why is this occurring? Why are forest fires getting so much bigger? An interesting thing is that they're actually not getting that much more frequent. There's actually not many more forest fires today than there were in the 1980s. The thing is that the forest fires that are occurring today are way bigger than the forest fires in the 1980s. And that trend uh, was already getting concerning 10 years ago. And what we've seen in the last couple of years are really blowing people's minds. 2020, uh, the area burned in 2020 almost tripled the previous record in California. Uh, the previous record had just been set in 2017 or 2018, and that seemed extreme at the time. Then 2021 has almost reached the 2020 level. Forest fire is one of these things that is increasing not in small incremental bits, but exponentially. And when we compare the annual area burn to forest to climate, it's really clear that the main driver is a drying of the climate. As the atmosphere has gotten warmer and drier over the last four decades, then fire growth has actually increased in a very predictable way. Even though 2020 was such an extreme outlier, if you just look at how much burned every year, that outlier was actually totally predictable based on how warm and dry it was in 2020 and 2021 is the same story. So people could say like, um, well, forest fires can't keep burning more areas because there'll be nothing left to burn. But you have a, a paper out recently about the area. Can you talk a little bit about that paper? Yes. In, um, so uh, so this, this idea that you just expressed is that fires are in a way self-regulating. That is, if a fire burns a bunch of vegetation, then that area is probably not going to be able to burn as easily, at least for a few years, until the vegetation gets back. 
And so the, uh, the theory is that this rapid increase in forest fire area that we've been observing in the last few decades can't last forever, and that should come as a bit of a comfort uh, because the increase has been exponential. And as we know from, from watching this virus, exponential things can go from kind of benign to kind of serious really, really fast. And, the, and so as we burn more and more forest, and at some point we should start running out of forest and leveling off, which of course doesn't sound all that good because most of us love forest. But it might sound uh, good from the perspective of, say, public health. The smoke from these forest fires is really, really bad. Um, the thing is, even though it seems like so much forest area has burned because the trend is so extreme, in the last 40 years, only something like 15 to 18% of Western US forest area has actually burned. That means that up to 85% of Western forest area is still waiting there to burn. So there's still a whole lot more room to go. And so we made some calculations or some projections of forest fire in the future uh, under a bunch of different scenarios. So we took climate model simulations of what the climate is going to be like in the future and we predicted then how forest fire is going to respond in different worlds. In some worlds, in one world, we assume that forest, when a forest burns, it can then reburn right away. And so that's a very extreme and unrealistic assumption. And then we made more and more realistic assumptions where on the other kind of extreme end, we'd say that after a forest burns, it can't burn again for something like 50 years. And we found that everywhere in there, that, that space we might think of as where the real world sits, the increases in burned area because of global warming are going to continue and be dramatic for the next several decades at least. And the reason is there's still so much forest waiting to be burned. It's going to take a long time before this self-regulating feedback is actually a big deal at a large scale. Now locally, of course, it's a really important thing. If the forest that you care about near your, uh, uh, near your hometown burns this year, it's very likely that, that spot is not going to burn again next year because there's not enough fuel to sustain fire. But when we zoom out and look at the whole western U.S., we see that this self-regulating feedback or this, this way that fire can actually help to put out future fires isn't going to be a big deal limiting fire growth in a meaningful way for several more decades at least. Uh, it's been interesting and sad to watch what's happened like in the Jemez Mountains here in New Mexico where, you know, Las Conchas was this huge historic fire that really it feels to me anyway from covering it that really changed the way that people were thinking about fire and and that fire certainly burned through areas that had burned previously. So I think um yeah, there's just so much happening. And um, I'm curious, um, you know, one of the, the things that I think people still, we still tend to do is, is think like, whew, we got through this fire season or this forest burned and we don't have to worry about it. Maybe next year we'll be okay. We'll get through the drought and maybe next year there'll be a good monsoon. Or, you know, we kind of are always hoping for this better season, but it really, it feels to me like we're on a trajectory and there might be good years and bad years, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what we need to be thinking about for the future. Um, that hope is, yeah, from the perspective of drought and fire, I think that hope is increasingly a bad thing to lean on. Um, hope is a great thing to use when we're gambling um, with the odds are 50-50, but if you establish a, uh, a system of, uh, of hope in a world where the dice are getting increasingly loaded, uh, then hope becomes less and less realistic. This, but it's still clear that we're relying far too much on hope. Uh, the Forest Service this year uh, gave us a great example of this, where forest fires were so extensive this summer across Northern California and Oregon and Washington and some of the Northern Rocky areas that the chief of the Forest Service uh, declared that for the rest of the year, the Forest Service would not be doing any more controlled burns or management of wildfire to, uh, in ways that allow wildfire to, um, uh, to burn uh, in ecologically favorable ways. What this means is that the Forest Service decided they were so spread thin on fighting fires 
they needed to just focus on fighting fires and not use any resources toward using fire to, uh, to burn forested landscapes in order to eat away at this fire deficit that we've been building for the last decade or by, for the last century by fighting fires. Many of the forests in the Western United States are artificially dense because we have been successfully fighting fires for a century, meaning the areas that could have burned in the 1950s and 60s didn't, and today there's more fuel on the landscape than there would be otherwise, so that when the inevitable fire comes today in a warmer world, then that fire is much more likely to burn very intensely. That story is especially true in southwestern forests, where before we started messing with fires by suppressing them so much, fires were coming through Ponderosa Pine forests in the southwest every five to 15 years, according to tree ring records. When we keep fire from, from visiting a Ponderosa Pine forest for a century, then that means we are throwing that forest completely out of whack and setting it up for a major fire disaster. So why would we not do controlled burns uh, as a uh, means of trying to, uh, as a means of trying to prioritize or uh, more easily prioritizing fire fighting? Well, the reason was because they, they say that, that resources were too spread thin fighting fires. But that kind of implies this level of hope that next year is going to be better and next year we can then do the controlled burns. But it also, which is not wise because as we go along in time, yes, next year could be wetter, but every year that we go into the future, the chances that that year is wetter go down and down and down in the West, especially the Southwest. 2021 actually, presented a huge opportunity for fire management in the southwest because, yes, while it was a really bad fire season up in the northwest, there was a great monsoon across a lot of the southwest, giving forest managers a unique opportunity to do low-risk controlled burning in southwestern forests. And we lost that chance because the Forest Service took a one-size-fits-all government-type approach where they said, no matter what, if it's a forest in the United States, we are not going to be doing prescribed burning. Right. So scientists like you, you're always asking new questions. I'm curious what questions you think the rest of us need to be asking right now, whether members of the public, policymakers, what questions do we really need to be asking ourselves? I think that, uh, that fire is definitely something that comes to mind because uh, it is, um, uh, changing rapidly. Like I said, fire responds to drought exponentially. And that means that uh, these big fires that have been shocking us will continue to grow, to grow larger in shocking ways. And it should be uh, pretty clear to us all now that fire is inevitable. In fact, fire is inevitable. It's been a natural part of continental landscapes for the last 350 million years. We then stepped in about 140 years ago and canceled fire. But that didn't, we didn't actually cancel fire. We just stopped fire for a century and we let forests get denser. And now, despite our best efforts to keep fire canceled, fire is coming roaring back and it's out of our control. And so what we should be recognizing as regular people is that fire is inevitable in Western forests. As the forests dry because of climate change, the chances of large fires are only going up. And so rather than thinking that we can choose to not have a fire in the landscape that we care about, say the fire that's near our house, we instead need to realize that we can't choose whether a fire is going to occur in our landscape, but we can choose when it's going to occur. If we leave, if we leave fire to its own devices, it's going to show up when we want it least. That means it's going to show up during a record-breaking heat wave, during a really strong wind event, when the fire is impossible to control or we could light the fire ourselves during a relatively wet and cool week or month and allow the fire to burn under more controlled, low intensity conditions. In order to do that, we need to assume some risk. Fire's hot, it emits smoke, it's unhealthy, and there's a chance that our controlled burn grows out of control. But there's a 100% chance that the fire that occurs at just the wrong time in just the wrong place grows out of our control. And so rather than choosing, can we do we get to have a fire or, or will we have a fire or will we not, we need to choose when will we have the fire. Will we have it at a good time or will we have it at a bad time? But it's going to happen no matter what. 
Well, thanks, Park Williams, for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. But we're hard at work with a legislative preview as we're now uh, just a little over a week away from the start of the 30-day legislative session to kick off with the State of the State, which you can watch here uh, on New Mexico PBS. Uh, we'll bring you that audio as a special podcast episode as well. So that's coming up before long, but we'll see you again next Friday here on the podcast with much more new content. Until then, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. Stay safe, stay healthy.